in the past, what we did was we would identify targets, find drugs that work in cell lines and these cell models. Then the task is, let's go find patients that look like ourselves, <laughs> yeah. right? Where I, we kind of flip it on its head. We say, what is the biology that's driving it in the patient directly? Then let's pick the models that actually mimic what's actually going on. And we use super enhancers to do that because of what we found was that the cell lines and the patient samples really clustered differently. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hi, thanks for joining me today for episode 59 of the Genomics Podcast. I am your host, Paul Broman, and I'm also Scientific Affairs Lead at Illumina. You probably know that developing a new drug is a complex process that involves massive amounts of financial and human resources. In fact, according to the most recent study by the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development, the cost of developing a new drug is nearly three billion U.S. dollars. And part of that cost is driven by the high failure rate of drugs in development. Surprisingly, about 85% of compounds actually fail during clinical testing. So there's a clear need for more and better compounds within the biopharma industry. For targeted drug discovery in particular, it's traditionally focused on inhibiting or modulating the function of abnormal genes or proteins. But many more diseases could potentially be treated by controlling the expression of both abnormal and normal genes. So to talk more about the role of epigenomics in drug discovery, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Eric R. Olson to the show. Eric is Chief Scientific Officer at Ciro's Pharmaceuticals in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Listen to Eric explain how genomics and NGS is enabling a paradigm shift in drug discovery. Well, Dr. Eric Olson, welcome to the Genomics Podcast. You're our first guest of 2020, so it's great that you're joining us today. So thanks for being here. So I thought we could start by you telling us a little bit about Ciro's and your background in genomics and how you came into your current role. Ciro's was founded in 2012 and is really based on the idea that modulating the expression of genes meaning the right gene in the right cells at the right time, could usher in a whole new class of drugs for some of the most serious diseases that have been intractable to approaches that we've used in the biopharma industry. And what attracted me to join Ciro's was, while the concept of regulating genes has been around for many years, we really didn't have the tools or the knowledge to actually approach that from a drug discovery perspective. And it's really only been in the last five or 10 years that with the new technology and understanding these mechanisms, we can now envision a path for translating this science into new therapies. So our genes, basically the 2% of our genome, the DNA that's encoded in the genes, they can be regulated by epigenetics, but then there's also this concept of epigenome which is a little different from epigenetics. And the epigenome is all of the chemicals and proteins that actually bind and, and interact with that DNA to do all of that gene regulation. So what's new about including epigenomics as a component of the drug discovery process? Or, I mean, is that new? And give us some context. 
many of our drugs that we've discovered and developed over the last 20 or 30 years, they really only modulate a small slice of the pie of cellular biology. We've been good at finding drugs that bind to surface receptors or signaling pathways inside the cell or metabolic pathways. Um, But ultimately, a lot of those pathways, we like to say, kind of end up in the genome. Um, The reason those pathways are important is because they turn on and off genes that determine uh, what a cell does. So that's where we've been limited in terms of if we want to alter genes, we got to do it through these indirect mechanisms. But now we know how these pathways read out on the genome. And so kind of epigenomics is the science of really understanding that input into the genome and more importantly than the output. And these are the things that kind of open up to me a whole new generation of drugs. You're analyzing the epigenome to find DNA enhancer regions, and we can talk about what that is. But in general, enhancer region is a region of DNA near a gene where a transcription factor or a repressor might bind and regulate that. But you're also interested in specific kinds of enhancers that are called super enhancers. Can you explain for our listeners what a super enhancer is and what's the significance of these in the context of diseases like cancer? One of the important things in the genome that, as you say, live around the gene are these things called enhancers. And that is where all the transcriptional regulatory proteins and molecules bind to turn on and off the gene, turn it up and down like a dimmer switch. But in every cell type, whether it's a normal cell or a cancer cell, there are several hundred of these enhancers that we call super enhancers. And they are areas of the genome, usually around a gene, that concentrate a large amount of the transcriptional machinery. In essence, the cell is saying, I'm going to put a lot of my resources on these few hundred genes. Because these pathways are really important for me. Yes. We can even think of, for example, a skin cell versus a nerve cell. They have exactly the same genes, but what differentiates one cell type from another is the genes that are expressed. And what our founders discovered before founding Seros was that those genes are accompanied with super enhancers. In fact, it's not just a marker of these genes, but it's likely the mechanism by which the cell maintains expression of these genes because they are so important. So we can look at these in normal cells and distinguish cell types by super enhancers. But obviously when we have a cell type where a cell is doing something that it's not supposed to be doing, like a tumor cell, a cancer cell, where it's proliferating, building new blood vessels, manipulating the immune system, We can find the super enhancers in those tumor cells and surmise that those are really important genes for the cancer. In the past, we've been limited by just sequencing the 2% of the genes and look for mutations in the coding region genes. That's kind of what we've been limited to in terms of finding the important genes. But now we can see that we can find these important genes through uh, uh, looking at super enhancers. So the super enhancer... How do you characterize them? What's going on mechanistically at a super enhancer? I mean, what makes it a super enhancer? Yeah, it's a great question. In fact, one of the original definition, it was really just an operational definition. What maintains the structure of the genome and helps dictate which genes are being expressed are the modification of these proteins called histones. Histones are proteins that the DNA gets wrapped around to help organize the the DNA inside the cell. But these histones get modified, and the modification of those histones help regulate whether that gene is is on or off. One of these modifications, uh, there's a lysine residue in one of the histone subunits that gets acetylated. 
the super enhancer is really a mark of heavy, heavy histone acetylation around a gene. And that is actually experimentally how we find them. We look across the entire genome in a cell and just count up where and how much acetylation of histones are and find, this, in essence, the zip code of where they are. In fact, retrospectively, we can look at some of our most important cancer drugs like tamoxifen or Herceptin for different types of breast cancer. And when we analyze those tumor samples, for example, in ER-positive breast cancer, we find a big super enhancer around the estrogen receptor gene. So kind of proof of concept that these drugs, some of our most important drugs actually work through this. We just didn't know at the time, but it tells us that that could be a fruitful path forward. So are you using epigenomics to identify genes that are upregulated in cancer and then target those? Or are you using epigenomics to find these super enhancers, find genes that interact with super enhancers like transcription factors and then target those? Or are you doing both? So talk a little bit about that. We're doing a combination of, of those. We're doing both. And let's just take it at a high level. What we do, and the reason we do it genome-wide is looking at these super enhancers, we can deduce what we call a circuitry. Kind of the, what's the wiring diagram of the cell. So we can take a holistic look. So instead of immediately pinpointing this super enhancer in this gene, we can look at the collection and we say, well, this cancer is really turning up a lot of genes involved in a certain metabolic pathway. So that metabolic pathway is likely to be really important. And it could be that one of those super enhancer associated genes actually is the target. But it could be some other gene that we know is in that metabolic pathway. In the example of the of the breast cancer and estrogen, the super enhancer identifies exactly the important driver gene. Importantly, in that case, that actually is a transcription factor. And that is actually what has led us to our one of our programs where we analyze tumor cells from patients with AML. We found about 30% of them have a super enhancer around this gene called RARA. And like the estrogen receptor, RARA encodes a transcription factor called RAR-alpha. So this is a case where we saw these super enhancers. Nobody had ever seen this. So it allowed us to actually segment a group of patients, identify them, in essence, cluster them based on uh, the super enhancers and this uh, presence of the RAR-alpha super enhancer. And we tested that in the lab in model systems of AML and indeed showed that RAR-alpha was really important in driving uh, cell proliferation in that subset of leukemia. Fortunately, RAR-alpha is like the estrogen receptor. It's what's called a nuclear hormone receptor type family that is druggable and has a binding pocket. So there had actually been molecules that have been made that bind to this. And in fact, one of them was approved in Japan for another form of AML. So we brought that molecule in and, and we are in, now in a, in a phase two study in AML patients with that form of leukemia that is being driven by this uh, super enhancer around RAR-alpha. Oh, that's interesting. In reading some of your other published work, one of the things I notice is that these cancer cells can often cluster by super enhancer signatures. And in one of the posters that I read, I forget where you presented it, you could classify cancer cell types by looking at enhancer activity between normal and tumor cells. And it seemed to be a better indication of cell type than, than histology, than morphology of those cells. Is that a property that's shared? I mean, you talked about AML, but that property of classifying cell type by enhancers, is that shared in other 
cancer types? And if so, what does that tell us about the biology of these enhancers in cancer? Yeah, it absolutely does. And in fact, I think every cancer that we've looked at, and we've looked at many, and even what other groups have done and now published, when they use this approach, when they use this super enhancer mapping, they're very easily able to cluster by super enhancers. And it almost always matches what's already known about the biology of that. There's work in medulloblastoma, pediatric tumor, where clearly clustering has shown what's driving the disease. There's really two or three different flavors of biology going on in medulloblastoma. So we've seen it in, in every cancer we've looked at. We've done it in pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, different blood cancers. So let's talk about some of the published work. And in particular, one of the papers I, I came across I really liked was a publication, Cancer Research. For any of our listeners who want to go and, and take a look at this, it's called Discovering Characterization of SY1365, a Selective Covalent Inhibitor of CDK7. Um, the PubMed ID is 31064851. In this article, you described a novel small molecule and it's an inhibitor of something called cyclin-dependent kinase 7, or CDK7. So first of all, what is CDK7? You know, what, what makes it a good target in cancer? And then if you can kind of describe what you found in this study. Sure. So let's just start from the basics. CDK7, it's, it's an enzyme, and in the field it's called a cyclin-dependent kinase, thus the CDK. And there's a whole family of, of CDK proteins. Enzymatically, they function to put phosphate groups on specific proteins to regulate the function of those proteins. They make those proteins either more or less active. And some of the proteins that CDK7 regulates through this addition of a phosphate include those involved in regulating cell division and those involved in uh, gene expression. So it phosphorylates cell division genes and kind of transcriptional regulatory genes. Two of the founders of Cirrus, Nathaniel Gray at Dana-Farber and Rick Young from MIT. Well, Nathaniel at Dana-Farber had been working with cancer researchers, and he had several people working with some of his molecules. He's a chemist, and he had made a selective CDK7 inhibitor just as a tool molecule, and people working in breast cancer and small cell lung cancer and neuroblastoma came to him and said, we've tested lots of molecules. Your molecule is the most potent against cancer cells. And then he teamed up with Rick Young at MIT and said, why is this? Can you explain this? And in the early days, what they found was that CDK7 seemed to be really important at super enhancers that were driving the most important transcription factors for that cancer. So the hypothesis was that for some reason, CDK7 is really important in those super enhancers. And we're still unraveling and trying to understand the, the exact molecular basis for that. But so it was an observation that CDK7. So because of that, when we started the Cirrus, we said, well, let's actually test this hypothesis in the clinic. Uh, but to do that, we need to make a CDK7 inhibitor that we could actually uh, dose in people. So for the first several years, we worked on that and came in up with this molecule, SY1365, which is a selective CDK7 inhibitor that covalently binds to CDK7. We took that into the clinic and we learned some really important things. First of all, you can dose people and inhibit CDK7 and get to fairly high levels without causing really major significant uh, toxicities. And secondly, we learned we could actually block and inhibit tumor growth with the molecule. 
in Bolden with those that early clinical work, we set out to make a molecule that would be even more selective, more potent, and probably more friendly for patients. SY1365 was an IV drug, and people would have to come in twice a week to get infusion. So we identified in 2018 a second molecule called SY5609, which is a highly selective oral CDK7 inhibitor. And we've completed all the studies needed to take that into the clinic, and we're expecting that that will be in the clinic this quarter. Wow, that's super exciting. Yeah. I'd like to know what are some of the biggest challenges that you've had? What are some of the bottlenecks, some of the setbacks you've had to overcome? And what are you doing to overcome those challenges? First of all, what gene or genes do you want to alter? Secondly, to what level of expression do you think is going to have a therapeutic benefit? Do you turn that dial down from eight to three or from eight to seven is enough for a patient to get a benefit? So that's a real challenge. So in some diseases, we've, we've met that challenge. For example, sickle cell is caused by a mutation in what's in a globin gene. So patients make a form of globin that misshapes the red blood cell into the sickle shape. And that's really the root cause of the disease. But there's another globin gene that does not have the mutation. But shortly after you're born, that gene is silenced, epigenetically silenced. But we know that there are individuals that carry the sickle cell mutation in the globin gene, but they actually retain some of the expression of the fetal form. And, and their disease symptoms are either absent or much, much milder. So the task then is the challenge of which gene, it's that fetal globin gene, to what level we know from the human genetics. So now it's just a matter of the third challenge, what do you actually target with your drug? What is the drug going to bind to to turn that gene up? And that's what we've been working on in sickle cell for the last couple of years. And in fact, at the American Society of Hematology in December, we presented work where uh, we identified a new gene that could act to, to turn up or down this uh, fetal globin gene. So a focus of our drug discovery effort in sickle cell, and we've got several candidate, what we call targets, that a drug could interact with that would now cause induction of this fetal globin gene. That's terrific, because that's a, that's a really devastating disease. So that, that's wonderful. It's one that we've known the basic outline of the disease for 20 or 30 years. So it's time, it's time to solve this disease. So over the next several years, where do you see the biggest impact of epigenomics and drug discovery? I mean, do you think that it's going to be more widely embraced by your industry? What excites you about the future? What are you looking forward to? Yeah. As I said, one of the reasons I joined Cirrus and really got excited about this was I think it actually is going to be very widespread because the, the basic concepts are kind of universal to all cell types and kind of almost all diseases. But I'm going to point to three specific things that I'm really excited about. Uh, the first is really understanding the links between kind of the molecular basis of a disease pathology and the gene expression and the gene regulation programs in cells. Like I said, in sickle cell, we, are, we know. That's uh, an easy case, That's right? an easy it's case. It's already known. And my guess is, uh, an expectation is that for almost every disease, we're going to understand that. Now, many diseases are not going to be a single mutation, dominant driving mutation like in sickle cell. Uh, but the same concepts are there. It's just going to take longer to deconvolute what those key genes are that need to be regulated to have an effect on the disease. I'm also excited uh, about the ability to take many of these genetic and uh, epigenomic approaches 
where we've applied them to populations of cells, and as we talked about earlier, down to the single cell level. Because now for the first time, we can look at, instead of looking at, for example, in a liver in a patient with NASH, you know, instead of just taking the whole gamush of a liver biopsy and trying to uncover the biology when you've got macrophages, stellate cells, hepatocytes, all these different cell types. In the past, we've had to, if you want to study a specific cell type, you actually have to figure out how to separate those out, and then you can't get enough of them. But now being able to, first of all, separate out very small numbers and analyze those with, find the enhancers, find the transcription factors, uncover the circuitry, do the RNA-seq. We can do that with small numbers of cells that we could isolate out, but we can also now do that in a collection of cells. You can now barcode cells and do RNA-seq, what's called single-cell RNA-seq, and see exactly which genes in which subset of cells in a particular organ are driving the the pathology. So I think that's really exciting because, as I said, the challenge is which genes in which cells. And the single-cell technology is what's going to point us directly in any given disease, which cell types do you really need to modulate Um, And what are those genes? The third thing I'm really excited about is every year we get deeper and deeper understanding about how this transcriptional machinery actually works and how the signals from the surface of the cell through the metabolic pathways get focused down to the enhancers and and, and specific genes in a specific cell type. And that's you know that's been work that's obviously been going on for many many years. But there's lots of lots of new science and new technology um, that's illuminating exactly how that machinery works. And of course, as we understand exactly how the machinery works, we can now start to think of the kinds of drugs that can alter the function of that machine. Eric Olson, I really want to thank you for joining us. This has been fascinating, interesting discussion. I think it's great how, you know, these advances in genomics technologies that we've discussed have kind of really changed some of the paradigms in drug discovery, but also really kind of elucidated these biological pathways as well. So it's kind of both of those going on in synergy, which is really, really great. So thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thank you. Hey, if you like today's show, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. Now, if you'd rather hear our show played on your favorite smart speaker, simply ask it to play the Illumina Podcast. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Jose Ordovas. Senior Scientist and Director of the USDA Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging at Tufts University. We'll be discussing nutrigenomics and the impact of diet on genetic predisposition to human disease. Right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast.